Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We're in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 5. Uh, we'll stand in a moment and read verses 33 through 42. This morning's message is entitled, Repentance versus Retaliation. So would you please stand as we take verses 33 through 42. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the councils stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Please be seated. Well, that first verse, when they heard this, they were furious, verse 33, and plotted to kill them. What set them off? I mean, this wasn't just, they wanted to murder these men. And not figuratively. Well, we have to go back to what Peter said, beginning in verse 29. He said this to their faces. We ought to obey God rather than men, meaning we ought to obey, obey God rather than you. That, that was not in Peter's favor with the court. It was with God because God was giving Peter these things to say. Peter also said, the God of our fathers, in verse 30, raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. By hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Well, that did not sit well with them. But again, Peter was not finished because God was telling Peter what to say. How do we know that? How do we know that this is what God wanted to say to these men through this man? Well, Jesus told the apostles this, Matthew 10. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what, how or what you will speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. This is a special kind of grace. This grace comes when we are cornered and being persecuted, whether it is a beating or an execution. And so everything we, we're reading here from Peter's mouth is coming directly from the throne of God to these men, and to anyone else who has a chance to listen and choose either to repent or to retaliate. Of course, these men chose to retaliate against 
Peter and the message that he brought, which means they retaliated against Jesus Christ. Peter went on to say in verse 32, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Meaning, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you won't have a problem with what I'm saying to you. But because he's not in you, you have a big problem with what I'm saying to you. They took it that way. And so, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. God was condemning them through Peter, as he does with us. Paul said, you know, we give off this fragrance as Christians, ideally. It's either a sweet fragrance of salvation, or it is the scent of doom, that they will perish. And that is what the gospel message brings every time we preach it. It is a take it or leave it. But if you leave it, it won't leave you. The consequences will not. You have every right to choose for or against God, but you have no right to choose the outcome if you choose to resist him, to stiff-arm God. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. And sometimes the Holy Spirit also gives, not directly, but he allows beatings for those who obey him. And that will, that's the case with this event taking place that we're reading about and at the end of Acts chapter 5. Those without Christ may either repent, as I said, or retaliate when told the truth about Christ. Retaliating here, unlike Nineveh. The Ninevites heard the ultimatum given. Repent, judgment's coming. They repented. Even at Pentecost, 3,000, over 3,000 had come to the Lord. They did not retaliate. They repented. Sodom, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, so committed to sin when it came time for their judgment that there was no message to be given again. There were no more chances. The timer ran out for Sodom and Gomorrah. And those that belonged to Lot had a chance to get out. Not all of them took it. Lot, he lived there. But he lost his ability to be taken seriously. May that never happen to the Christian. To become so insignificant that what you have to say is not taken seriously. His sons-in-law, they, they laughed at him when he told them, we got to get out of this place. Judgment's coming. They thought he was joking. It was no joke. There are whole churches that aren't taken seriously by the world. There are Christians that are so busy trying to jam the gospel down somebody's throat without the Holy Spirit that they're no longer taken seriously by those whom they would like to see saved. It is interesting that we're to go into world to all the world and make, fill in the blank, not converts, disciples. It's greater than converts. It presupposes that the converts are part of that, of course. But that's not enough. It's not enough to convert somebody to Christ because Satan is going to look to snatch them back and Jesus gave a whole parable on the seeds that fell on the various types of ground. God withholds what he has to say from those who scourge his truth. If your only response is to scourge the gospel, to scourge the message, to scourge the messenger from the Bible, 
then no pearls for you. God will not cast pearl before swine. And this is the case with Sodom and Gomorrah. Their time ran out. And it is the case with these men at this inquisition, for how dare they preach in the name of Jesus Christ. The prophet Amos was sent to Israel with this message. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord Jehovah, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Jehovah, or Yahweh, interchangeable. I'm going to, you're going, there's going to be a famine. You won't find anybody preaching the word of God because you don't deserve it anymore because you've trampled it. Because your response to my truth was to retaliate against me. And God means business. How are we to respond to God's word and his holy scriptures? Well, we are to be convinced that he is right, without argument. It is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Now, to bring this message to people in the workplace, we have to be good workers. We, we, it ruins our witness when we're the slob on the job. But when we're diligent, we don't have to be the best, or we should strive to be. When we are diligent, we, take, we start reducing the, resist, the, the points of resistance we win friends that way. You'll be friendly to unbelievers, to a point. And then when that friendship is established, the doors begin to open, quite possibly, to preach the gospel. God knew that a sinner knows they're perverted before him. And he's provided a way to do it, and they just don't like it. Sodom and Gomorrah refused to be convicted of their sin. Jerusalem would do the same thing. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that stones the prophets and kills those that are sent to you. Oh, why do you need to send anybody to us? We're Jerusalem. We're the religious correct. We don't have to have a message from any prophet. We are the prophets. It doesn't matter that we don't listen to God. We have our rituals. And so the prophet Ezekiel, God speaking to him, God was saying, I'm, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, but I'm going to make a distinction between my people and those who retaliate against my truth. And they retaliate in all sorts of ways, all little clever ways, sophisticated ways, crude ways. Making little statues, making up opinions, contrary to what God has said. Zedekiah was the last king in Judah, the last king of the Jews among men. And he ruined the nation further. And the message that Ezekiel said he sees this vision. Yahweh said to him, in the vision, he sees these men. And one of them has an inkhorn, a marker. A, uh, what do you call those markers that don't wash off? Don't, yeah, whatever, I can't hear you. <laughs> it sounds like this to me. <laughs> anyway, in the vision, God has sends these four men. Three of them are armed with weapons. Fourth has an inkhorn. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within her. Those are the righteous, the righteous remnant, those who repent, those who say, I am wrong in my sin. God is right. I am a wretch before God. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thank God there's Christ Jesus. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul said, and it's true of him, it's true of us. Some can't take it because they think they're good enough to be received by God based on whatever is in their imagination. They're comparing themselves with themselves. Sinners comparing themselves with sinners before a holy God remain doomed. These apostles, however, they were taken seriously in contrast to Lot. That's why they're being persecuted. They are a threat to hell. They are a threat to that which is evil. They are being taken seriously, not for being oddballs, but for making sense. And this is a lesson we hopefully come away with. I don't know if Christians understand the value of expositional teaching. Jesus started it. He expounded to them from all the prophets, all the books, things concerning himself. He exposed to them those things. He turned the lights on for them. So if you come to church and you're looking for something, you're going to miss it more than likely. Unless you're looking for what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. He's notorious for singling us out. And not for judgment, for exaltation too, for encouragement to build us up. In verse 34, then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Gamaliel was the most influential rabbi of his day. He lived... During the days that Christ walked in Israel, performed the miracles, he would have been well aware of the life and the times of Jesus Christ, leaving us asking him this question, what did you do with it? What did you do with it? With all of his scholarly credentials, he lacked spiritual discernment. What profit is it a man if he gains the world? You can go take as many Bible courses as you want. You can go to best churches that, 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 that exist. If you, still, if you lack spiritual discernment as to who Jesus Christ is, the identity of Christ, it profits you nothing. Discernment of the most crucial matter of his personal existence, identifying God. If you can't identify God, your identity is messed up. A lot of Christians struggle with their identity, who they are in Christ, what their role is in life, to go into the world and preach the gospel, making Matthias disciples. It is an honor to be deputized by God himself, to be entrusted. As we discussed, the angel freed Peter, but the angel couldn't preach the gospel. That belongs to sinners saved by grace. Paul the Apostle, And if you don't know who Paul the Apostle is, you're missing out. He was a pupil of this very Gamaliel, this popular rabbi. Later, we'll get to Acts, sometimes in 2050, when we get to chapter 22. He says, Paul speaking, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, And was zealous toward God as you are 
today, he's speaking to colleagues, well, one-time colleagues, fellow Pharisees, fellow Jews. But you catch that and was, past tense, zealous, just like you. But there's more. There's so much more surrounding Paul's conversion in connection with this man, Gamaliel. The fact is, the teaching of this Gamaliel and those like them, like him produced this effect in Paul. And he tells us, Paul tells us what this kind of teaching did. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That was his boast before he met Christ. And then after he met Christ, oh, wretched man that I am. But when Paul met this Jesus, whom we love and just adore, the teachings of this Gamaliel became to Paul as trash. He discarded it. He says it's rubbish. It would be like if you were uh, a Mormon and you, you, had a, you went to the university and you became a doctorate in Mormon theology and then you got saved because Mormons are not Christians. Then you'd say, I threw it all away. Every drop, every jot, every tittle, everything I learned there was wrong about Jesus Christ and I salvaged none of it. Philippians again, Paul continues about his prior life in Christ, raised at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He says in Philippians 3, 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, as dung, as trash, that I might gain Christ. There's a reason that he had to jettison, to discard that stuff. He wanted to be like Christ, not like Gamaliel. Sure, he benefited from a formal education, but only to a point. And that point is not where men place it. It's where God places it. I encourage all Christians to go as far as you can go in whatever it is you are applying yourself in your studies. If you can get a doctorate in whatever it is you're studying, get that doctorate. Get yourself where the, uh, where the arrogant unbelievers tend to roam. Get those credentials and be that castle in the middle of a desert that you can make converts for Christ. If you choose not to, go, to take the academic route and you become what is called a blue-collar worker, maybe you're a machinist or whatever it is you are, be the best at it for Christ, that you would draw them to you, that they would be drawn to the light because they're going to see that light because it's going to be in contrast to those who don't have it. And some will retaliate and some may repent. And Paul did not teach what Gamaliel taught or it was not worth retaining once he met Christ. It was flushed in an instant. So he trashed it. Paul taught what God taught. What is that? Christ's likeness to us goes all the way back to the Old Testament for us. In the beginning, when we read, God created from nothing. When God created from nothing, that's Jesus Christ. And we begin to watch 
after that to learn to grow in the ways of Jesus, even if it displeases. You know, a lot of people think you come to Christ, now you should be more this or that for them. It doesn't work that way. You retain your personality, just not the, you begin to deal with the parts of it that are not Christ-like. Ephesians chapter 4. Every Christian should be familiar with Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to take verses 13 through 15, but I might drift over to verse 17 also. I know we've got things to do today, and we've eventually got to get out of here. But this is after he says that he himself has given some to be apostles, evangelists, prophets, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, for the equipping of the saint, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. Another section of scripture that seems to uh, be sort of dismissed. Then he says, he's given us these till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. That's Christ's likeness. The measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. It's what the world doesn't have. They don't even pursue it. They don't know it exists. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. That's what he says. Now remember that when we get to the last verse, when they went, on, when, went continued to preach and to teach. It's a great distinction between the two. But what I love about this fourth chapter is when we get to of Ephesians, is when he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. That's Paul's theology. Christ, and it should be ours. Some of you may have some college professor or some coach, some mentor in life whom you really admire. Nothing wrong with that. Unless... You admire that person, and they lack Jesus, and you admire them to a fault. And by that I mean, if, you were, if, if that individual were challenged on their lack of faith, would you be offended? Would you run to their defense? If you do, it's misguided allegiance. You have to sort that out. You go to the university, some of those professors are very charming and engaging and admirable. As people go, as common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to be a likable person. In fact, many Christians are good at becoming not too likable. <laughs> Some college grads don't care to hear that the universities are not the custodians of God's truth. Some get a little offended. It bugs them because they, they love their university. And this is more with the, those who are graduates. Uh, it's not so much, at least in my experience, in other areas of life. But when it comes to knowledge, to education, this seems to, to get a, a little bit different attention. And 
these universities begin to take this attitude or this position, and it's not the church. It is not the Bible. It's them. They appoint. Or they are the custodians of truth. This is a cultic ador- adoration if you have it. If that is your alma mater. Well, what does that Latin word mean? Nourishing mother. That's what it means. That is the literal translation of the word. If that is your nourishing mother and you are a Christian, you have not counted all things as rubbish and you got to get there. Otherwise, you will be defensive. You will put up these little, you know, okay, you can criticize this and that, but don't you touch my alma mater. Satan still uses knowledge to seduce men and women as he did Eve in the garden. He uses knowledge. We all want knowledge. Wouldn't you like to speak 30 different languages just so you could ignore people you didn't like? I could speak his language. I don't like him. We all like knowledge. We wish we could just keep knowing. that's That's fine. So long as the tail does not wag the dog. And for Eve, the tail wagged the dog. She sold out. She stopped listening to what God said. And something else became more important. To her, the serpent wasn't yet Satan, at least in her knowledge. He was indeed, in, in, in fact, but she did, was not there yet. It says here in verse 34, And commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Well, Gamaliel knew he was smart enough. We talk about common grace. He's smart enough, pragmatic enough to know a massacre of the 12 prophets was not the way to go. They will later kill Stephen, but they will be a solitary event, and, and that he asked for it as far as they, they would tell you. So verse 35, and he said to them, now remember, this is the Gamaliel. He's a wise man. God is using him here, but still he is, he is not, a, he doesn't convert. He doesn't go far enough. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. So God is intervening on their behalf. He's saving their lives through Gamaliel. They don't know this yet. They're outside. And Gamaliel is going to speak wisdom without grasping their message. He's looking at the facts, but he's missing the point. And again, this is something that we Christians can do when we come to our Bible, when we come to church and hear a sermon. We can miss the point because we're looking for something else instead of what God is trying to show us. Verse 36, for some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Yeah, well, these guys before them right now are going to come to something. Have you ever read a book by Gamaliel or a letter? What you have by these guys, you've not only read their letters, you've studied them. You've submitted to them. Thutis was a common name. He's not to be confused with another revolutionary around that time that Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions. This is a different one. Verse 37 And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Well, Thutis and Judas, (laughs) 
of Galilee, not Judas Iscari- of, you know, Kiriath, but Judas of Galilee is this one. They both resisted Roman authority. And, yeah, Rome had rule in Jerusalem. It conquered the land. And so, yeah, there were all of the Sakari, the assassins. There were all these groups that were looking to break free, these guerrilla groups. The census that's spoken here is not the one in Luke chapter 2. Later, when Judah was becoming, uh, when the Romans came in and they'd begin to divide up the land and put governors there, they would conduct these census to figure out how many people they wanted to tax for the Roman government. And this, this would excite riot in these zealous Jews. And you could understand it. They felt this is God's money. We're not paying it to Rome. It's the whole thing when they said, is it lawful to pay taxes? And Jesus says, well, whose inscription is on that? Whose image? And, uh, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give to God what belongs to him. God is still saying that. Whose image is stamped on you? And take that and give it to God or give it to Caesar. Figure it out. Well, anyway, this, um, that's who Gamaliel, what Gamaliel is talking about. And they're all nodding their heads and listening to him because when he speaks, people listen. Uh, they viewed it as treason to pay taxes. They submitted, many of them, but the rebels, these two mentioned, Judas and Judas of Galilee, they, they did not. They rebelled against it, and, and Rome put them down. Well... The big difference between Christ and those men is that the apostles are serving someone who's already dead and risen again. Those guys died, and that was it. But Christ is alive, and his movement is continuing on. So with those other two, their followers abandoned them. And there were other such characters at that time. Ultimately, this rebellious attitude will cause the Roman armies to completely wipe out Jerusalem uh, as the the, the structure and kill countless people. Verse 38, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. Verse 39, But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So someone's not received Jesus Christ can, can... can say the right things, but it's still it's not far enough. It's like a you could be the, a, the great, greatest swimmer in the world, have all the form and speed, but if you fall overboard and you don't make it to a safe place, you die. You didn't make it. And that's uh, the case with people like Gamaliel. They can have great insight. <clears throat> they can borrow wisdom, but they can't identify God. And that's what it comes down to. And this is the difference between someone like Lazarus who was a beggar, and the angels took him to the bosom of Abraham, as the Bible language goes, having greater meaning to that, of course, versus the rich man who died and went to hell. So this is true. It's true enough. And God has found enough of what he needs on that council, he knew it was coming, of course, to use it to save the lives of his apostles. But still, one must confess Jesus was crucified, risen, and is Lord to be saved. And any fight against God is a fight against your own good. That is true of an unbeliever or or a believer. This is in their own scripture. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to him who strives with his maker. 
Well, that's true, and we have to learn that. And that's why we submit. That's why we say, not my will be done, but your will be done. If your final response is to Christ, just this pragmatic uh, word of wisdom, but no confession. I mean, I have spoken with people who have agreed, yeah, the, the Bible's a good book, and, and, you know, I can't refute these things, but they wouldn't take the step into Christianity. They would not repent, at least when last I, I checked with them, the ones I have in mind decades ago, but people are still doing this. Maybe you know folks like this. Uh, if you die with just a pragmatic view of Christ, then you die an unpardonable sinner. It will be too late for you. And Jesus made it clear that it is not possible to be neutral when it comes to him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. I think that's just <laughs> very clear. You cannot be neutral. Well, you know, I'm neither for Jesus or against him. Well, then you're against him, according to him. Now, remember, the unbelievers, they don't know this. And some, once they do know it, they're still going to rebel. But others may repent and be saved. Verse 40, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. <clears throat> Well, again, useful, successful in God's hands, still spiritually short-sighted. And when they had called for the twelve, for the apostles and beaten them, there's the resentment. They just couldn't let them go. That wasn't enough. They were bitter. Because, again, remember when Peter opened them up, when you guys crucified, you murdered him, you hung him on a tree. You guys are foul. That's what Peter was saying to them. You're so messed up. What I do? What can I do with you? And uh, they beat them, probably with leather whips, 40 blows each. That would be according to the law, Deuteronomy 25, 3. 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. Well, had these apostles been conformists instead of prophets... They could have dodged this beating, and that's the same for you and me. If we just conform to the culture, if we just lose our identity and begin to identify with them, and begin to go around the culture and say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, what else can I do for you? How else can I be like you? Instead of being distinct, yeah, we can avoid criticisms and mockings and beatings, but that's not our assignment. The apostles, this is an interesting thought, they did signs and wonders, healings, great miracles. Yet here they are beaten, and they don't heal themselves of their own wounds. Because it's not magic. That's why. It's because they had not tapped into some mysterious power in the universe for their own use. They were God's subjects, and there was no other way around being his subject. And they're good with this. In fact, they're boasting in a righteous way. It continues here in verse 40. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, this is the third time that they've said this to them. It's, it's like, third time's a charm. Uh, not for you. Not this time. 
The world is aggressive, and right now in our lifetime, aggressively reenacting this great sin today. This is a grand sin. We don't want to hear the name of Jesus. <laughs> Too bad. That's the apostle's response. Forbidding the name of Jesus to be spoken at graduation ceremonies. Telling chaplains you can't say this in Jesus' name. I mean, trying to just censor. You can say Satan. You can say Muhammad. You can say anybody else. Not Jesus. Well, why is he distinct? Because he is. That's why. There's no other name given under heaven among men. No other name. And though they may not realize it, Satan is the one that's trembling behind the scenes. If someone is advocating the censorship of the name of Christ, a never-ending curse awaits those who applaud it, who advocate it, who are for this, or are neutral in its presence. I don't say that on my own authority. That's why we read the scripture verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know that uh, unborn child murdering center that says, well, you can't you know, preach the gospel around us? They're, they're suppressing the truth. You can't tell the truth about them. Satan has no new moves. They're all old, but they are very effective. He doesn't need any new ones. People keep falling into the old ones. Look, there's a ditch, clunk. Look, there's a ditch, clunk. <laughs> it just keeps, uh, keeps going. If by this man Jesus the sins of sinners are forever removed, what penalty awaits those who withhold his name, who withhold the solution? This is what we have to tell the world. What do you have against Christ, by the way? What is it that irks you about Christ? That he does not condone perversity of any kind? I mean, there are various kinds of perversity. Stealing is a perversity. It's something that's twisted. It doesn't belong. It's not right. Lying is a perversity of holiness, of purity. I mean, the list just goes on. What, what exactly about Jesus Christ do you not like? Because if you don't like him now, you wait until you stand in judgment. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is sorrow and anger mixed together. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Well, what happens if this man is not preached? Then sins can't get forgiven. Uh, now you're getting it. 1 John 2, verse 12. Your sins are forgiven... You, for his name's sake. Oh, that's the name they don't want to hear. I love praying in Jesus' name. I don't want anybody to be unclear. It's Jesus Christ. That's how I get to God. Jesus is God the Son. And there's no other name by which we are saved. And I don't want to be vague about that. The apostles will not conform to this again. Ultimately, they will escape the scourge of the Jews and be scourged by the Gentiles. In fact, as far as we can discern, uh, they will be scourged by Rome to death. Uh, most of them. Verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Well, they would need wound care. I'm not being funny about that. They were beaten. And this wasn't, you know, smacks on the hand. They, they, these guys hated them. The, the beat, those who beat them hated them. And they weren't like, go easy on this one. There was none of that. The apostles would now come to expect injustice from these antichrists. That wasn't a surprise at this point. And there's more coming. It gets juicier, I think. And this is what I mean by we come, you know, when, we, when I prepare uh, for a message, I'm looking, what, God, what do you want me to say? I don't know what to say. Have a nice day. Uh, same thing to, to when you come to sit. You, God, what do you have to say? And I think there's a lot here. Where it says here in verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They're, they're behaving as though they have just been decorated for valor. You would think someone had just put the Congressional Medal of Honor around their necks. They're rejoicing. Thank you, Lord. Had they viewed themselves as victims, which we are quick to do, that would have been the end of their bright ministry. Had they gone, you know, limping away, this was not fair, this wasn't right. They weren't thinking about what was done to them. They were thinking about Christ, the grace they received from him. They had to be thinking, as we do, how would I behave if I was faced with severe persecution? If someone told me I either learn to do this or get fired. If, I, if, if someone told me that uh, I have to put a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar or be killed, what would I do? Well, looking at it, uh, as, as a young man, you're a little naive. You go, oh, I'll take my beating. <laughs> you doofus. You, <laughs> you don't know what is or is not in you. And you don't have to. What you have to know is what's in Christ. And he is the one that gives the gift of martyrdom. 1 Peter chapter 4. Remember, Peter's the one that really got everybody the beating. And none of the apostles were saying, Peter, not now. Shut up. Restrain it, Peter. Hold it back. Are you doing it again? None of them. They were like, yeah, this is us. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He's writing that first letter of Peter is to persecuted believers. And he's saying, yeah, I've been there and I'll be there again. And that whole section in 1 Peter 4, through 12 through 16 is, is worth reading. God does not give this kind of courage until we need it. And that's why when you read about others facing persecution today or in history, you say to yourself, what would I do? Well, if you belong to Christ, it's what will he do? And what he will do is give you the courage. Why isn't this book of Acts mandatory reading for all Christians? Notice that they did not need counseling or therapy to get through this. I'm serious. I reject every any connection. I, you might as well mix the prophets of Baal with the with the temple of Jehovah. If you go, uh, I, I reject everything that has to do with behavioral psychology, pop psychology, therapeutic psychology. My Bible gives it all to me on how I should behave. I just got to face it. And if if the believers in the Scripture die and are killed believing God, then why would I be surprised if I've got to fight 
for courage to face life. And because people aren't saying this, because they're saying the opposite, people are responding to that, you know, subliminal suggestion, I guess. You know, I just flash it out. Yeah, you should get therapy. Okay, I can. Well, you're having someone now that's saying to you, you don't need that. His divine power has given to you all things that pertain to life. Now, what part of that do you reject as a Christian? And he's talking about behavior. He's talking about approaching life, living through life. I think those guys, they'll mess you up. Anyway, I know that it stands out to me. I'm passionate about this because I live in a time where this stuff has crept into the church and taken hold of believers. I don't question their salvation. I don't question their belief in Jesus Christ. I question their judgment, though, when it comes to this. They probably question my judgment as to hair products. But that's fair. God's servants have a history of allowing God to let them suffer because God has a history of letting us suffer. It's called submission. We surrender to this. We accept this. Blessed or stressed, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what we say. Just may we be blameless in the process. Verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. So I have to go back to one other point about the psychology. Don't take it up in school. I mean, take up knitting, uh, horseshoe throwing, anything else. But don't take that up. This, this school of thought was created by men that hated Jesus Christ. Freud, Maslow, Young. Those guys weren't in love with Jesus Christ. They resented that people would go to the church and say, how should I thus live? Uh, just uh, get that out. Every now and then I have to say that because I don't want someone coming to the church not understanding this is what is preached here and then find out five months later. We want to try to be up front but not be cruel and hard. And, and so, if, you know, if you're struggling with it, my door is open. I've certainly talked to you about it uh, to help you through it. But I don't want to be misleading on such a subject. And I'm not going to give case studies either, although I have a ton of them. Verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Two thousand years later, the Jewish Sanhedrin is gone. But these men are not And we're looking at what they did and what they said as though the hand of God was on each one of them because it was. Scholars pour over their writings. But the Sanhedrin marginalized. There was a reformer who belonged to a school of Christian thought that, not my school, but he's still a believer. And he said, it is truly, this is written in the days of John Calvin and the Reformations in France, Switzerland, It is truly the lot of the church of God for which I speak to endure blows and not to strike them. But may it please you to remember that it is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Well, that's what we're reading here. Uh, The hammers of the the, uh, Sanhedrin is worn out on the anvil of the, the Christian testimony. They did not cease teaching and preaching. Amen. Couldn't shut them up. Now, they were wise as serpents, harmless as doves. In some cases, you have to move on. We've, we've covered this. But in this case, they were not to stop. Preaching is the proclamation of God's provision for salvation. That is the, the Greek word used here, 
for preaching. We'll get to teaching in a minute. Preaching, therefore, is for the unconverted, essentially. Those are the ones that get preached to. Converts no longer need preaching. So if you go to a church and every Sunday morning it's a message about the gospel, you're being starved to death. You're not being uh, nourished. And I think it's a mistake. I don't agree with that, I should say. I mean, how others do it, that's on them. But this is one reason why we don't do it here. Uh, We need teaching. Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ. That would include salvation. It doesn't reduce the, the gospel at all. Let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Paul says to the, to the Hebrew Christians, you need to mature in your knowledge of Christ. You need Bible teaching. And so instead of teaching the church to maturity, too many are preaching the church to death. They're telling them what they already know over and over again. And the witness of the church includes both teaching and preaching. And it discerns when it has to do one or the other. This word that I mentioned, translated preach, gives us our English word evangelism or evangelist. It means to announce the good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And uh, that is the exact meaning, to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. A short walk to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first eight verses, lay it all out for us. Conversion comes through preaching of the gospel, but growth comes through the teaching of the word. And when you have smarter Christians, you have more effective Christians. First Tim, uh, 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes to the pastor, and he says, And the things that you have heard from me, And among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The emphasis is clear from the days of Christ on through the revelation. And it is quite presumptuous to think, as a Christian, that you do not need to be taught regularly and retaught, requalified. It is this process. Uh, Once you, you imagine if you had a pastor that just thought he knew it all. Uh, And just, you know, didn't apply himself. Didn't care what other people had to say. Uh, You would not applaud that, I hope. Well, why would a pastor applaud a congregation and felt, nah, we don't need the word of God, we're just Christians now. You say, well, who does that? Well, this is a practice that's not articulated, but it goes on nonetheless. It is also stifling to suppose that the saints must depend upon the pastor on Sunday mornings to save souls. That's why you're taught to go into the world and make disciples, and you make them by converting them and bringing them into this preaching and teaching process, and the cycle continues. Now, Christians have done this without often thinking it through and just done it because they're led by the Spirit of God. So the last point that he makes is Jesus as Christ. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. And they did it from house to house. They did it because there was no church building. 
I found out eventually when Christianity got in place, well, you know, we, we gotta, we've got to organize this more effective. Well, I want to close with this verse. Paul writing to the Colossians, he says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.28. Let's pray. Our Father, always just amazing your word, how it just fits so wonderfully together. But that's not the main point. The main point is to do something with it. May your word have its way with us. May the flesh and the world and Satan not. May we be useful tools in your hands to encourage and to edify each other as believers and to make converts. Not with pressure, but with the Holy Spirit. If you've been listening or watching and you've never opened your heart to Christ, then you're dead in your sin. In other words, you're guilty before God of breaking His commandment and He is not going to take your excuse from you as He's not going to take it. The only thing that he will accept is that you have accepted his plan of salvation, which is through his son. That's the deal breaker. It either breaks the guilt or it breaks the guilty. It's your choice. If you would like to open your heart to Jesus Christ, you've got to do it and step up and do it. Make this confession of faith. If you say in your heart, If you say it with your mouth, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess my sin, that I have broken your law, that I am guilty before you. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to take my guilt and my punishment away, that I would belong to you, that I would be subject to you from this day forward. That you would be not only my savior from judgment, but also the master of my life throughout all eternity. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer in Jesus' name, may they not be ashamed of it. May they step forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.